Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The great Winston Churchill said, Courage is rightly considered the foremost of the virtues, for upon it all others depend. This quote is the foundation of leadership and character. I say this because my guest today epitomizes courage in the way that Churchill so magnificently described it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the No Limitations podcast, where we meet the elite, world-class performing men and women, and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. This episode with Barry Irvin, Executive Chairman of Bigger Cheese Limited, is revealing and raw. It is also very personal and powerful. It is our longest show thus far, but whatever you do, don't turn it off. As well as being Exec Chair of Bigger Cheese, Barry is also Deputy Chairman of Capital Chilled Foods and Chairman of Giant Steps. In 2008, Barry was awarded a member of the Order of Australia for his contributions to children with disabilities and the Australian dairy industry. We cover a great deal, more than I expected, and cannot thank Barry enough for his willingness to be so open in his feelings and philosophy. We discuss the essence of leadership, of values and integrity that were challenged in the face of adversity. We throw out the business textbook and learn that company mantras on the wall don't lead to innovation. We learn that sharing secrets is powerful. And we asked Barry why he decided to buy back Vegemite. So sit back and enjoy this truly inspiring conversation. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. Barry, I know a little bit about your story. It's quite a remarkable story. Do you mind taking us all the way back to when your mum gave you that big, large jumper to start life out? <laughs> you do know a bit, Craig. Uh, look, that's, that's sort of something I, I always laugh about a little bit. Um, I laugh about it now. It probably wasn't so funny at the time. I grew up as a dairy farmer's son and, you know, we were fifth or sixth generation dairy farmers. And as I guess people would know, dairying cannot always be an, an easy life. And indeed, at the time, it wasn't a, a prosperous life. And so we, we had, you know, very humble means. And and my mum was a pretty strict mum. And uh, anyway, when I was finishing primary school, and I sometimes jokingly say that I never knew I was poor until I went to high school because nobody ever told me and everybody that went to primary school was sort of the same as me. So, um, But when I went to high school, it became obvious that there were stratas and there were um, differences in life. Um, I guess one of those things was that my mum, when she had to buy me my school uniform for high school, bought me a school jumper that she thought was expensive and therefore needed to last the full six years of my high school life. So she bought it multiple sizes too big for me and told me to look after it because it was the only one I was ever getting. So for... 
what I thought would be one or two years but turned out to be the best part of six years, <laughs> um, I never grew. So I wore a jumper that looked like a dress for those entire six years, got very good at rolling up the sleeves and rolling up the, the, the bottom of the jumper. Every time I'd run around, it would fall down and be longer than my shorts. And, um, but, you know, so, so yes, it was, it was, a it was one of those, I guess, indications of, of, of a very humble beginning where we had to be careful with every dollar we had. And was school pretty tough with the other kids picking on you a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Look, it was, look, I would love to say it had, um, Great memories. There were some good memories, but it was interestingly. Sometimes people think that um, social stratas only exist in cities, but they exist in country towns. Sometimes even more than than in cities. And you know, it was. I was probably a little bit of an outlier in that. Even if I do so say so myself, I was academically strong, mm-hmm. but I came from uh, a farming background, and there were some stratas even around. Um, so it tended to be that the children of uh, I guess the professionals in the community were in the higher classes and the farmers' kids were in the lower classes. So I neither fitted with the, the farmers' kids. So I was, I was a betrayer, if you like, to my class because I was um, I always pursued sort of academic excellence, if you like, but I didn't fit with the uh, other part of the community either. So the inevitable uh, occurs, I guess, when you're an outlier. You okay. tend to get picked on. Was it a big farm? Not really. We, we, we were, it grew over time. Um, my father was originally in a partnership with his brothers and then that partnership split up. So that made the farm relatively small. Um, but you know, my dad was always fairly ambitious in terms of trying to do more in agriculture. But, um, uh, he was, I would say that he was a natural farmer, unlike myself, but it was pretty hard work, Greg, would be the right way of putting it. And dad couldn't see the opportunities in the academics? No, not at all. No, not at all. The, um, the first negotiation I did with my dad was uh, when I was in year ten. So I learned uh, I learned the art of negotiation from a very young age. Yeah. Um, my dad, I was an only son. I had a disabled sister um, and another sister, and who, who later became disabled. And right. uh, so, as far as my dad was concerned, I was a labour unit. I needed to finish my regulation period at school, which was fourteen to nine months, and I needed to then come back to the farm. I negotiated. Uh, me going on to year 12, you know, personally I saw academics as a way of escaping but you could not admit that you were going to escape. You yeah. had to always say, yes, my, my parents are designing my future for me if you like. So anyway, I, I uh, did negotiate uh, as I was coming towards the end of year 10 that I could go to year 11 and 12 provided I milked uh, each, most mornings and I got home and milk when I got home and I did all weekends. And so, so I said, Barry, getting up at three o'clock in the morning? What's, uh, what's yeah, that? look, back then it was, funny enough, it was about four o'clock back then. And, um, Good sleeping. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, um, um, and, and so that was just what was expected. And I, and look, and I was, I used to be a bit of an irritant to my dad, I think, because uh, he couldn't quite, on the one hand, he thought that I was quite a good farmer and I, and I was a learner. But on the other hand, he couldn't understand it. So I would come in for breakfast at 7.30, say on the weekends after we'd, after we'd milked. I would eat my breakfast as quickly as I could and then rush to my room and study until we were due to go back out at 8.30. And I would grab and I would do the same at lunchtime and I'd do the same every night. And that used to be an irritant to my dad because he couldn't understand why I would just constantly go and hit the books. Right. But, of course, um, nothing motivates you like um, the hope for something Maybe a little better than what you're experiencing in in those moments. So it was it was a it was a reasonably tough period. But again, it was it was just something that you know I, I basically kept to myself. I would just work as hard as I hard as I could. I wanted to please my parents. 
but I also had ambitions for something something more for myself. Um, so you did that deal with your dad. Mm. He says, okay, keep going, but mm. what, it, when you finish the HSC, you're going to start here full time? Yeah. yeah, that was the deal, yeah. So what happened when the HSC came and, and completed? I reckon I was one of the few people in Australia that um, when they got an exceptional academic result, fundamentally had to leave home. I'll probably soften it and put it that way and, and uh, um, because I think my uh, my dad thought that I had, you know, betrayed, betrayed him, yeah, and uh, and that I hadn't kept my part of the bargain even though I had, all I had was the result. I just had the result but he knew what that result was and he knew what that meant. And well, you topped the school, didn't you, Barry? Well, yeah, it was, it was, it was a strong result, yeah. Look, uh, there was a... There was a battle between between a handful of us for the for for the um, for the honours of the top of the school, but yeah, it was it was um, it was a very strong result from the from the school point of view, and and I needed to I needed to take that next step, I suppose, and my parents knew that, and um, and interestingly, that's how I ended up in banking because I guess you know you don't have that many examples in in a country town, and I and 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 to be honest, I didn't actually even ha- have great ambitions. I just thought there must be something. Better. I, I suppose my biggest ambition was that I wanted further education. I wanted to go to university. Um, and canoe down the river. Yeah, yes, that's true. Yes, which is another story, but um, which I'm happy to touch on. But um, yeah, my, my ambition was always I just want to learn uh, and I just want education. And I didn't actually quite know what for, but I did observe, I suppose, those children and adults with what I would have said was an easier life. So, so you know, the truth is I, I sort of looked at a, at, a, at a mate whose dad was a bank manager and he seemed to work good hours through the week and he, um, and he had the weekends off and he got what seemed to be very important to me at the time, a free car, which I thought was oh, you know, right. what more could you ask for in life. And so I, um, in the absence of, of I And guess, was a man around town, I guess. Bigger. Well, yeah, you know, like, like it was those people that, you know, those were in the days when bankers were, were respected and, and they, were, they were the people that, that, you know, I guess carried social status. And, and it wasn't so much that I wanted social status it was that I couldn't understand why you weren't, why people were looked down upon just because of where they came from or, or what their what what their economic circumstances were. So it wasn't that I wished to be above; it was that I didn't think it was fair to be below. Would be the right way of putting it, I suppose. And so, yeah, in the absence of sort of having the means and the support and the resource to um, head to university, I did the next best thing and. Um, well, in truth, I turned up at my mate's, mate's, place, mate's place, and my and my mate's dad said, "What's what's happening?" I went, "Well, I think I need somewhere to sleep." And he and he sort of knew some of the story and said, "Well, look, we don't normally get the opportunity to employ people like yourself." He then proceeded to tell his son how lazy he was, and and, um, and and how he needed to learn how to work harder, and um, and um, said, "I'll give you a job." Um, but I'll transfer you pretty much straight away. So he gave me a job. Uh, if he said if you want it, I said yes, I, I, I want it. He said we can't stay here. And then I, you know, I, I'm still, despite they're going through a, a very uh, sort of difficult time or a time under great scrutiny at the moment, I'm still a great lover of what large organisations can bring people that don't quite have advantage in life. And so, you know, what what happened to me, and I see that it's not, a, even, even in government, in organisations where you can join and be trained and be transferred and be exposed to different parts of life, if you don't have the ability or the means to do that on your own, you know, banks did 
perform part of that role as did a number of government organisations in the in the era that I was growing up in the in the late seventies and early eighties. So you got that break, and off you go to go to Sydney. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, I went to Sydney, and um, you know, I think I'm mean, interested. Got transferred to a uh, and look, this is a, a silly story. I got I got transferred to uh, the State Bank at Rockdale, um, which had multiple interpreters on staff and had the valuers upstairs and was a very big branch and and of course I um I didn't know anybody and I didn't know where I would say stay. So the uh you know fortunately the the manager spoke to one another and he said, Oh look we can we can set set him up and um and they did and they, they set me up at a boarding house at Heathcote, which I've gone Right. How many years ago was that? Oh, that was. That was she was in the sticks uh, in those days. Oh, yeah, that was in the eight. That was that was that must have been nineteen eighty, I guess. And then and and then um, so the story with the boarding house at Heathcote, I moved in um, and discovered that I was sh- it was a literal boarding house. I was sharing with four other people, well, three other people, and there was a broken mirror um, in the bathroom where I try and shave, and I'd actually bought my um, work clothes from Kmart. Uh, I had a nice pair of brown pants and a nice pair of black pants and a red shirt and a brown shirt and that was the sum total of my work clothes. Uh, and I took a few bits and pieces with me and anyway, moved into the boarding house and uh, I think the first night they served me food that was – my mum was a good country cook and um, that I could hardly eat. So I left the dessert, which was unusual, and the next morning I got up and they served me the dessert for breakfast because you were told <laughs> that that's why you, you, know, you ate what you were given and that was it. And and the and the uh, I think that that was okay. I sort of caught the train and got to got to work. And fortunately, those days, um, the branch staff did have a lot of banks still do. They had a lot of female staff, and they all looked at me and I think they instantly felt sorry for me and they sort of tried to tidy me up and 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 help me. Uh, be a little bit more presentable as soon as I got my first paycheck. But um, but the funny thing is I got home back to my boarding house and most of the little things I'd taken with me were stolen. And I've gone, oh, this is bad. So I went and saw the lady and said, all this stuff's missing. And she said, well, it is a halfway house. Right. So I was living in, <laughs> I was living with a bunch of jailbirds and, and myself going. And so anyway, that was probably the, that was probably my my second lesson in negotiation because I, um, back then the, um, the bank used to have a, uh, a strep line, which was we do more for you personally. And so what they, um, what I had to do when I first arrived was memorise all the ledger sheets for the for the various um, customers, and then go through their signature cards and ideally memorise all their signature cards. So then, now as a teller, when somebody would come up to me, I would look at the name on the check and know how much money they had in their account and know whether the signature was correct, and ideally remember their names. So I could say, hello, Mrs. Preston, how are you today? How's your husband, Les? And you want $200, no problem, and cash the cheque and not embarrass them by having to go and check or walk away from and made it very efficient. So, of course, when you live in a halfway house, you um, you uh, wonder what else you could do during that conversation. And what I did with every customer that came up to me that I thought was in any way friendly would say, I'm Barry from Bega. You don't know anywhere where I could live, do you? And, um, and and as it turned out, one of the customers said, "Oh, yes, well, I have a garage. I'm converting to a to a granny flat. You can come and live there if you would like." And hence, that was where I lived. And so it was, I guess, again, that was that early lesson of sort of going, "It's probably worth sharing your problem if you do it in the right way and talk about what you're what you're trying to do and show something of yourself. People will help you." And that was um, what happened back then. What did you learn about the customer 
You're exposed very early on to the customer. Uh, look, I think, so So for me, and look, it's a modern day word, but it was all about engagement. So so I was actually well, blessed. You, you, got, you got home with the customer. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I was, I was actually blessed with a very good memory. And and it was amazing if you could if you could actually make that connection if you could actually show the respect of actually making that connection of working really hard and and if you if I didn't know them the first time I would definitely know them the second time um, they would lean into you they 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 would they would enjoy their dealing or their transaction with you whether it was a minute five minutes and whether and when I went into sort of loans and other parts of the of, of the banking sector I went this is actually about having people when given the choice say I would rather work with you I would rather do the deal with you and and that and and I think I think that came out of the fact that I was demonstrating respect very early on and I was very always very careful to be very respectful and, and interested in what they were worried about. So, you know, I, I sometimes think and as organisations get bigger, they lose this where you sort of go, what I have to remember is that I need to understand what you need, not what I need. And if, and if you work on that basis, you, you, you then do start with respect. But that's, um, I guess that, that, was, that was the early learnings of that and it just stayed with me all of the time with whoever I dealt with. And look, it manifested itself in the end, Greg. I used to always say to my staff as, as we were growing bigger cheese, I used to say, look, if there's a customer in town in Melbourne or Sydney and they're walking down the street and they're on their own on a Friday night and they're looking at their phone wondering who they'd like to have a beer with, Let's try and make sure it's us that they call. Is that true? Yeah, because that's that's you know that's my perspective on life. Who do you want to have a drink with? It's a great perspective, Barry. Yeah. Now, during this period of time, I think uh, your career starting to move upwards. You've also going a bit of travelling, aren't you? Backwards and forwards to to uh, the farm yeah. to help mum and dad out. Yeah, and you've also you got a lady in your life, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I felt. Um, look, even though even though I paint a a, a bit of a, a difficult picture, I suppose. I felt very, very guilty that I was um, working away from the farm and knowing that my dad was working very hard in a, in, a, in a pretty tough existence. So I sort of made the promise to myself that I would try and do the weekends and would try and do as, uh, as many as, them as I could so I would finish work on a Friday in Sydney and drive the five and a half hours down the coast to, um, to Bega to make sure I jumped up on Saturday morning and... Sunday and the weekend. Saturday, four o'clock, and, and milk, and milk the cows, yeah, and then and then finish on Sunday and head back to um head back to Sydney and and uh, you know and and look the interesting thing about that is that every time I and because I wanted to make I want I you know I wanted to have that family relationship and as I said while while some of it might sound a bit difficult I still had you know great affection for my mum and dad so um or or wanted you know, i guess that respect and and so um but dad on a every almost every sunday afternoon when we'd finish he'd go so when are you coming back so it, you know he 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 could not understand it he could not understand why i didn't want to be there and and or not that i didn't want to be there that i that i had ambitions for other things and interests in other things and i think you know when i've reflect on it now many years since his passing i go I think he had such a love of farming that he couldn't understand how anybody else couldn't and that. So that importance of sort of developing empathy was, was you know, I, I guess he was a demonstration of somebody that just could not understand somebody else's thinking, uh, even his own son's. Where was mum? Mum was supportive of dad. Oh, right. To be fair to my mum who I, who I 
loved dearly. She had disabled daughter that she had, I guess, I didn't think about it at the time, but had been fighting against what the, what the then norm was. So she kept my sister at home. You know, so if you think back to that period, right. you know, most people with intellectual disability and physical disability were institutionalised and she wouldn't do it and she wanted her to be part of the community, which is very much modern-day thinking. Yeah. But when I you know, we're talking, you know, we're talking my, my sister would, would now be 60. So we're talking in, you know, a lot of years ago and so and mum was trying to deal with what was, uh, you know, a particularly challenging sibling from for, and and daughter for her and uh and trying to i guess keep house and and um and look again different social structures rebellion wasn't something that happened unless except in a very bad way i suppose and, you know mine was a mine was a different sort of rebellion but yeah mum was always there to support dad and always there to try and keep the house in order and the family in order which meant fitting how long were you doing the commute for Barry? Oh, years, probably five or more years. So yeah. pretty much every weekend. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, the, the old one where I wouldn't and as you said, I had, I eventually managed to find myself a girlfriend and, um, and uh, who was also a banker. And, um, what, from the same branch? Uh, originally, but, you know, back then she got quickly shifted away. <laughs> you know, like it was, it was um, she sort of got me in order and, and um her and uh, uh, some of the other, as I said, some of the other ladies at the branch um, took me shopping and sorted me out. And then when the when the manager and accountant at the branch at the time thought there might have been something going on, she was uh, she was summarily moved to another <laughs> branch, you know, so um, or into into the city actually. So sometimes she would go. I don't know why we have to do or do this commute or you have to do this commute all of the time, but she eventually ended up being quite supportive and understanding, but would occasionally get. Irritated by it, and it was always. I guess there's always that balance in life of trying to go. Well, you have the obligations that you feel that you grew up with to family, but you have obligations to others as well. And I tried to balance that. Pretty fair to say you got to a point where um, I guess you made the decision you never wanted to pursue farming during your career, and you're about to get married. Yeah, and, and you had yeah, yeah. So a rough time yeah, again, didn't you? Yeah. So I um. I loved banking. I was a natural with numbers. And and this is, again, one of these things where even my wife reminds me today that, you know, it's interesting when I talk about empathy with my dad, I could never understand why it takes people so long with numbers because I would just be able to do them and they would just appear and I would just be able to work through them. And so banking was just something that was almost in my DNA. And so anyway, uh, I and and the bank had looked after me extraordinarily well and given me lots of opportunities. Um, and, and and my wife and I were, were both good bankers, it's fair to say. And um, a week before we were to be married, my father died. And uh, it, it was, you know, you, you sort of have these lasting memories, you know, I and I had been back and forth a few times knowing that dad wasn't well. And I'd increased even more the sort of interaction I was having, and anyway, he he, he died, and uh, and it, it, it was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I can remember, and so very traditional family. Dad controlled all the finances. Mum knew nothing. I knew nothing. Again, to to sort of maybe soften it a little, I went went down to support my mum. We had to work out whether we would still go forward with the with the wedding on the on the Saturday in Sydney. Interestingly enough, and. Yeah, and the first thing I did, I can remember sitting on my the, the lounge room floor that I grew up in, 
piling up bills that were unpaid. Oh, really? And looking at bank statements and going, this is not good mm. and trying to work out whether the, what equity might be there and how I might support my mum and, and, my, and my sisters. And uh, uh, so anyway, it was almost incomprehensible to mum and I was trying to work out how to say it without saying it to her and ended up going back to Sydney and saying to my wife, I think we're coming, becoming dairy farmers. Um, or your future wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, my future wife. And, and and it is fair to say that I did say to her, look, I know this wasn't the deal. I think I, I did say a little bit more to her than that. I said, um, so, you know, we were good little bankers. We had a nest egg. And I said, so all those savings we've got, they've got to go into the farm. And, uh, and the farm that you never wanted to go to run. Yeah, or, or, and the one that she quite rightly pointed out as a good banker wasn't actually ours. It was actually my mother's now. And uh, we were going to put... All our money into it, and was and, and how was that going to work? I mean, we'll, we'll work that out later. We just need to do that. And I did say to her, "Look, I know that wasn't the original deal, <laughs> and, um, you know, and if if you want to maybe postpone Saturday or whatever else." But you know, my mum was fantastic, even though she she couldn't. We we didn't tell her a lot about the financial position, and we and we um we tried to keep her as supportive as possible but she was also wonderful in saying the wedding has to go ahead I'll be there you know we need to we need to get this done you're lucky you've found such a nice girl I don't know why she's marrying you all the things that you know mums normally say to you and my wife on the other hand was saying okay well we'll do this deal we'll go back and you know I think her first question was well how long do you think it'll be for and I said well I don't know look a year or two Twenty, you know, like I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. I said we'll work it out, and and um, and she was because we were trying to work out whether we took some time off yeah, or right. whether we quit. Yeah. I mean, I, I still sort of laughingly say she sort of said to me, "Well, um, okay, so where will we live?" And I said, "Well, with mum. With mum, we'll have to live with mum. There's nowhere else to live. We'll live with mum." And my disabled sister, <laughs> and, um, and she said, "There's only one spare bedroom. That's across the hallway from your mum." I said, "Oh yeah, I know. Well, you know, like, it'll be, but it'll be okay." And I said, "But there's my, my my room." I said, "We can sleep in my room." And my room, my mum had preserved my room from when I left, so I'd had posters of Stevie Nicks and um, <laughs> Deborah Harry, and I promised her I'd take them down and I'd move the single bed out and put a double bed in my room and. <laughs> All would be right with the world. And she said the double bed wasn't going to get much use. And and yes, the Stevie Nicks and Deborah Harry posters did need to come and down. She, and she still wanted to marry you. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she'd seen the room. <laughs> you know, like, and she was um, so, yeah, so that was how we started life in Vega. So what then happened, Barry? You obviously uh, helped mum out. Yeah, yeah. So, so we sort of got on again, you know, like I, I suppose I, I um, look, I still remember one of the most sobering things and, and funny enough, it, by that stage, we, we'd sold both our cars and we had one car which we, I decided to leave with Harriet while she, she would drive that down and I would catch the bus down to start milking. So it was an eight-hour bus drive from Sydney to, bus ride from Sydney to Bega and I got, and I was horribly bus sick all the way down but I think mostly because I just knew I was doing something that was not where I thought I'd be. And I got off that, mum picked me up at like eight o'clock at night and I got up the next morning at 2.30 because I thought I'd need to get up even earlier because I had to remember, try and work out what I needed to do. And so that was it. I started getting out of bed at 2.30 every morning and started building the the dairy herd up and, you know, the people used to joke because I sort of worked out that, you know, I, it was all about marginal cost of production and I could get and whatever cow I could steal or borrow or even even beef. Cows, I would go, oh, she looks okay, I'll milk her. I would milk anything I would find. 
to anything that was cheap, anything that I would find, I would milk. And, uh, and the dairy would be bursting with animals and my colleagues would love, fellow dairy farmers would go, that is the weirdest looking dairy herd we've ever seen. But I started to make money and started to recover and do quite well. And What was the bank manager saying during all this? Uh, well, look, thankfully we were banked by the bank I worked for and this was a different era. I still remember the bank manager. I still remember the first discussion, which, you know, not unlike now, I've walked in with our accountant and the numbers were horrible everywhere and, 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 they were, and I had already done and I, I keep saying it's hard to duplicate things that can happen to you that I think stand you in good stead. So the, the next week I was back I had to walk down the street in Bega and talk to every business that we owed money. You owed money. And tell them that I couldn't pay. Tell them that I would pay but I couldn't pay. Tell them that, and, and the final stop was the bank manager because I needed to needed to know exactly what my position was, who would who would extend my credit, who wouldn't, before I talked to the bank to see what they would say. And so it was one of the most, you know, for somebody that had sort of had an independent mind and had probably convinced themselves by then that not much help was required and you could get to where you needed to go under your own sort of steam, it was very humbling to wander down and say, I can't pay you and get those different reactions, some being supportive, some being very aggressive, right till I got to the end of the street, which I ran off is where the bank was in those days and I walked in and I knew the manager. I'd actually audited him once and um, and he got the files out and he said, well, and I was, and I was there with our accountant and he, the accountant just said, look, the boy just needs a couple of good seasons. And of course it was in the middle of a drought and it stayed in a drought for the next couple of years. And, and, the, and the manager looked at it and he said to me, he said, you know what these numbers say. He said, you know that we can't extend anything and we can't do anything. And I go, I've gone, I, can you preserve what you've got and let me push a little bit harder on the overdraft? And he said, and, and again, different era, he said, look, I can but you know that as soon as an audit comes around, this won't pass muster. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll lose the file. Lose the file? He said, so you'll have 12 months, not six months. I'll lose the file. Wouldn't happen, wouldn't happen today, obviously. But, you know, and people talk about the negative side of banking. The, the, there are stories that I think people don't hear about the positive side. That was one of those stories where he knew that we couldn't meet the criteria, but he elected to help and... Um, and people might say it's small or big help, but it was a- enough help to give me enough space to get myself sorted out. So I um, I started getting the farms in order. It was working. I used to I used to work twenty eight days straight. Get up at two thirty, work twenty eight days straight, have two days off, and normally because I would do that to myself, I would have a my a horrible migraine on one of the days and have the have the next day off. And that was and my wife was supportive through all that. She went and worked. In, a, in the bank branch and that was what gave us some income. And uh, then, then you know, slowly started to get on top of things and became aware of being a cooperative society and became aware of I hadn't much thought about what a, even a co-op was mm. and I hadn't, hadn't even thought that much about supplying milk. Like, you know, I knew I got, who I got paid by but uh, and, and look, in truth, I became a bit aware of it because we I discovered we had some shares in it and I was wondering whether those shares could be realised or whether I could get any, you know, whether there was any, any value in them because I was sort of digging up under each rock and so I wandered along to some cooperative society meetings. 
So how did you how did you get employed by them? What's the story behind that? So I started to um, so look the, the 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 short story was that I went to a meeting and they were talking about the fact and you know it was quite a small organisation that had fairly old infrastructure and it was in a regulated market where the vast majority of milk produced in Bega went to the Sydney liquid milk markets under regulation. So the government controlled it and there was only about 30% of the milk or about 3,000 tonnes of cheese produced through relatively old equipment. And I, and I was at a meeting where they were talking about the fact that they were struggling to raise some capital to, mm. to um, do some business improvements and I and look I'm I'm testing my memory but it was it was it was three or five million dollars which in today in even in those days it would you know I'm as sitting there as a banker going looking at their balance sheet going I don't understand why they're having trouble and put up my hand and said I can help with that. And I think most people they must have looked in horror. Wouldn't they? Yeah, they, they just looked like, at me. Yeah, they just. You are, so you're the one who owed everybody the dough. No, I think they looked at me. I think they looked at me going, "Look, you're not even a very good dairy farmer, you know. Like, and you owe everybody money, and you're, you know, like, and um, and and you know, how can you be so confident that you can do that? But anyway, so I went back to my banking roots and 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 indeed sorted that out. And then, interestingly, I think the probably the board at the time were trying to work out whether I was friend or foe, you know, as I, as I was sort of because I then got very interested in the cooperative and the structure and how it all worked and sort of being sort of a a, a knowledge seeker, I suppose, I, um, I, I started sort of learning more and more and more about cooperative structures, funding options for them, how they might work, why, why you know, Encouraging share ownership by farmers, which wasn't something that was traditionally done under cooperatives, and, mm-hmm. and in the end, they went. I think you better come and work for us, you know, because I think because I think they thought I was probably I was probably um, um, a skill that was that was that was valuable for them, but they probably thought I was probably not best left to my own devices either. So they um so they and I look and and in truth I was I was happy. I, I, I was um trying to get the farms right and that was some additional income and and um I could and and in truth my wife used to I struggled in those early years, uh, even though I was doing all the work and getting it all done. I felt like I'd given up what was my was your true calling. You know, and, and what I really wanted to do, I wasn't doing and I could do this well, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And in truth, you know, occasionally I'd go through those sort of down periods. And, you know, they're all different ways of dealing with people that struggle, but my wife knew me well enough to say, well, stop complaining about it, either do something about it or put up with it, but you can't just dwell on your lost ambition. And so the irony was that bigger, the bigger cooperative society, you know, now bigger cheese, became the avenue where I could actually do both, where I could sort of satisfy my obligations to my family and even, and, and again, you know, I'm a lot older now, preserve what is a significant heritage for yeah. my family in terms of that those properties but still pursue, I guess, my, my deep interest in sort of business development and, and corporate life. So there, you ascend in, in Bega. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you get the top job. Mm. Didn't you have that uh, interesting meeting when you called the whole team and said, "What's the competitive <laughs> advantage we've got to offer?" Yeah, Greg, I'd love to. I'd love to say that they gave me the top job <laughs> because of my significant abilities and skills. But the truth is, I got the top job in the year two thousand, which is when the Australian dairy industry was deregulating. 
won't necessarily mean a lot to you, your listeners, but to maybe just give you one one example. Under the regulated system, our farmers were getting 50-odd cents a litre for their milk from the government and that was for about, as I said, 70% of the milk and they even called the milk that was left over surplus milk and they got a much lower price for that but the core of their income was coming from, from that and they were the, the members of the cooperative. Deregulation meant that all that government system fell away and that when we did the numbers we said, well, your likely price for milk is 28 cents a litre. Almost halved. Mm. And so everybody said to me, nobody, everybody said, the farmers will hate you. You know, um, they've got to go through this deregulation period. They're the people that vote you into, into the positions and whatever else. The, the board will be changed. It'll be dramatic. We hadn't really developed an international business then. We were reliant on the big players in the industry. They, um, so, so I, uh, I still went, that's okay. I want the job. And I believed that I could sort of communicate to the farmers well enough to have them feel like we were all on the same team. But when I did get the job, it was pretty frightening. And I did get the executive team in a room and I said, I know what to do here. I've been, I've, I've actually, this, I'm going back to, to, you know, my banking days. I know what to do. We get the whiteboard out. We have a strategic planning session and what we've got to do is work out our competitive advantage, you know, our strengths versus our weaknesses, where we're, and we're going to develop this fantastic strategic plan and it'll be all fine, guys, you know. And so, and I'll never forget sort of starting and somebody said, well, we've got 1% of Australia's milk. Okay, well, that's not very much. That's not a strategic advantage compared. So our big competitors were coming out of Victoria and they said, you know, we're, most of our kit is about 30 years old, so that's not really it. Um, most people describe us as being in the middle of nowhere, so we're not, we don't have a location advantage. We kept going through and people and this went pretty, on. Pretty positive meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It went on for hours. People would throw things up and other people would go, they go oh, look, I think this is an advantage, and they go, no, that's not an advantage. You know, like, and, then, and it went on and I ended up sitting there going, we need to stop, we need to stop. Said, don't worry about it. I've worked it out. And they've gone, oh. Fantastic. All hail Barry. You know, like he's worked it out. And I've gone, guys, the competitive advantage we have is that we have no competitive advantage. Everybody will underestimate us. Nobody, nobody, we will be on everybody's list to disappear because we knew, everybody knew in the lead up to deregulation, there was going to be winners and losers. Those companies are going to disappear. Anybody that drives up and down the, the coast between, you know, across Victoria and up to Queensland, they'll see dairy factories that have closed down in almost every town. And Bega was would have been definitely on the list yeah. in, in the other war rooms around the country of somebody that was going to disappear. And so I went, well, we, we will not be anybody's priority. We will have some space because people will not consider us a significant competitor and we'll, we'll regroup knowing that that's our that that's our competitive advantage. Now, of course, I didn't sort of reveal at the time that I had a I had an idea in mind that was that was unusual to say the least, but but I needed to go away and think about it a little bit more before I even revealed it to my own teams. So I knew I had developed relationships with most, and because I believe relationships are important, I had developed relationships with most of the leaders of most of the dairy companies in the country, and had studiously developed them, worked hard on developing them. I also always sort of believed in the the knowledge of others and the and the, and the value of big brothers, if you like, even though I never had one. And um, or sisters, so I decided that I was going to go and see all my competitors and tell them exactly what I thought was wrong with my business, 
So you're going to reveal the inner yeah. secrets to your competitors. Yeah, I'm going to tell them. Goes against every book written about yeah, business. I'm going to tell them everything that's wrong with it. Tell them everything I'm worried about. Tell them everything that, that, that I think is not working and where I think we're vulnerable. And equally, tell them what all my ambitions were for the business. So, you know, I these days, although I hadn't thought about it in these terms back then, I, I'd actually decided that there was value in sharing both your fears and your dreams and sharing them with people that had knowledge or understanding of the sector of the business that you're working in, there was way more to be gained than there was to be lost. Now, you can imagine I got some of the weirdest reactions you've ever seen. You know, I would have people sitting opposite me saying, don't you understand I'm your competitor and (laughs) we're going to take you over. Yeah, right. We just The only reason why we haven't taken you over is because we can't work out whether you're worth any money or not or whether you'll go broke or indeed um, we just haven't got you yet because we've got more important targets before we get to a minnow such as yourself. And I'll go, yeah, I know, but if you were me, what would you do? And they would look at me bewildered for a while and I would always try and organise the meetings to be late in the afternoon so they would be so bewildered that they'd agree to come for a drink with me because they'd feel <laughs> sorry for me. And so we'd generally continue the discussion at the pub and they would generally still be bewildered. But there was one thing that I was, and I don't know why I was certain of it then but I'm actually even more certain of it now, which was that funny thing is about human nature, if you tell people your dreams and your fears, they can't help but think about them. They actually can't help but think. Even if they don't like you very much, they can't help but think about them. Even if they're your competitor, they can't help but think about them. And the other thing that is equally funny but true, the next time they see you, they can't help but tell you what they might do. They can't. So I had any number of competitors coming to me saying, well, if I was you, not that I want to help you, but they would. I would do this, this and this and this. I've been thinking about it. And Barry, but when you started this conversation, what was the dream you were actually sharing with them? So I actually had I had this view that that bigger cheese mm-hmm. needed to change the way in which and the way in which dairy farmers were viewed, the way in which the business was viewed, and indeed how we did business with others, whether it was B to B. So I had again, and this came back to my banking background, where I understood the difference between business to business and business to consumer. Yeah. And so I was going, there's, there's a lot of opportunity in B2B where we don't work very well together. Just partnerships, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so I've gone, there is a role for bigger in this. Now, the funny thing is I had a view that I didn't mind being the junior partner or, or in a role of servitude as long as I thought that I was changing the opportunity that was presented by by then the bigger cooperative society, you know. And, 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 you know, and so part of that ambition was literally I wanted it to be successful because I wanted the next generation to be coming through that actually didn't have to leave the town, that weren't relying on. Because by that stage you were seeing the traditional institutions fade in, re, in, in regional and rural right. Australia and, and, I want, and I went and so you're seeing these country towns die as all the talent leaves and I had this ambition of saying I don't want them to have to leave. I want to be the one that actually trains them and develops them and, and you know, I, I, I'm not even sure how that formed but that was, that was, that was what I wanted to achieve and I, didn't, and I didn't mind, I didn't mind being humble or even, or even have to, having to take a bit of humiliation <laughs> to actually do it. I didn't and, – and, you know, so when, when I would get lectures from very large companies telling me that I was irrelevant and telling me that I didn't matter or, or, or just patting me on the head, I actually – I didn't mind. I, I, and I didn't mind, which was, the, which was the model we developed, which was one of 
looking across supply chains and doing the work that our competitors didn't want to do. So it's how we became very large in cutback and processing. It was considered labour intensive. It was considered, you know, very low margin, uh, not very glamorous. Uh, and, and so we developed this sort of sense of saying we will find customers in our field of business, not in other fields of business, but in our own field of business that have needs that they would rather not do themselves or that we can convince them that we will do better for better than they will and that will help us not only grow our business but actually give us access to their technical people, access to their consumer people. So we'll learn more than just how to deliver the product they want. So we'll the, now slightly cynical, we will learn, we will get more than just the deal. Yeah, right. We'll get the knowledge, we'll get the relationship. We'll become such good problem solvers for this, for them that they'll give us more problems. They'll give us more things to do because they will consider us irrelevant. So happy, you know, for the want of a better way of putting it, I was a child that was taken to church a lot. I was actually happy to take the crumbs off the table. When was the first break? When, when was the, uh, the, well, the game starting to change? Barry? So the first deal the first deal we did was with Fonterra, which was a very large deal. They had just been formed in Australia. Bonlac had collapsed. There was a consolidation opportunity, so I was in there talking about consolidation as much as I could. They had a lot that they needed to do with that business. So we, we, we became very quickly one of Australia's largest cut, pack and processes of cheese, not only our own but others. We started to make significant money doing things that other people didn't want to do, which I guess is not that unusual a story in business. We developed a financial strength out of that that then led us to, and I guess this is the, really the business story that led us to sort of, I became worried about four or five years. After we'd started, we had multiple customers. We were just growing and growing and growing. We were solving everybody's problem. Anybody who wanted a retail pack of cheese in any sort of form, we we were the cheapest and the fastest and the most responsive, and we could do it better than anybody else, even though we we're in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, right. um, and we would be we would be bringing other people's products in. Um, so not we weren't necessarily producing the cheese ourselves. We'd be buying it from around the world. We'd be doing whatever. We'd be delivering it to customers around the world in their brands or in our brand. And so why are you worried? Because I thought. It was just really good equipment and a really good customer-centric model, but it could be duplicated. And the trouble is, I'm starting to become not irrelevant. <laughs> you know, and so it was. So once I start, once I started to go, okay, so people are going to start looking at this business model and decide that we might be making a little bit too much money, or that indeed we needed to become irrelevant again. So in about 2005, I started to say, look, we're actually now financially strong. We need to look around for the next opportunity. And it doesn't necessarily need to be what we're doing, but it obviously needs to be in dairy. And I was equally, you know, very much, we were still as far as say, say, you know, and it's still a traditionalist industry. The, the, the powerhouses in export were in Victoria because that's where all the milk was. So I went, we need assets in Victoria. And that was, of course, in the middle of the millennial drought. And Northern Victoria was in enormous trouble because of the drought to Tura Milk Industries was on its knees, might, might be the right way to define it. It was surrounded by a couple of big players in Fonterra and Murray Goulburn and it had become non-competitive, it had too much debt and it's and because of the drought its supply was diminishing and then it couldn't compete so our competitors were also taking its milk. And uh, I think, you know, the the wisdom was of the industry that they would probably go insolvent and the big players would pick up the, the mess. So again, our advantage was that nobody was watching us 
so we went and came up with a deal that was unusual in that we went to the board and said, look, it was basically a cooperative. It was owned by farmers and we went, you, you've got a problem here. I think you are in financial difficulty. You need money. We've got money. <laughs> um, we'd, we'd be really happy to buy the business but why don't we buy 70% of it? and leave 30% on the table because we're buying it at its weakest moment. And there was – and we knew that we should in theory get outbid by the big players. Um, yeah, right. So we needed to offer a different sort of deal. So we offered to buy 70% leaving 30% on the table for a better day and we thought that would build goodwill with our farmers, with, a, with what were to be our new farmers. The, the competitors were shocked but the moment they'd lost the momentum – so uh, whilst I scrambled to try and outbid us or come up with other plans or whatever else, we were we were on the on the path to, to getting that deal up. So we bought Tatura in two thousand and seven, or bought seventy percent of it. I began to develop relationships with the suppliers down there, talked to them about a better day, talked to them about the fact that we were we had ambitions for that for that facility and and that business and and and. To be candid, on the other side of the coin, I had advisory people saying, "I don't think you should go on the board of that. It might be a, uh, it's looking too close to, to being on the edge of, of solvency." And I've gone, I've just, I've just sold the bigger story and my story. I'm going on the board, and um, so we, we began to build Tatura and refine that business. We put in a whole lot of exercises around bonding the staff. Well, didn't you dismiss the chief exec and the chair in the same day? I did. I did, Greg, yeah. So you do know too much. Um, <laughs> and didn't you walk out the back and say, has anybody got some ideas or yeah, something? Yeah, I did. That was a bit of a learning, wasn't it? So, yeah. So, look, I had – it was – It was. It, people I, – I sometimes think people think that um, sort of those larger corporate deals, they sort of have an image of them that is sometimes you – that know, comes out of movies, if you like. Um, and so for me there was – Two things, I suppose. One was I knew that I had a very large competitor that should just blow me out of the water, and for some reason they 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 stumbled and and they they wanted to play a a penny pinching game rather than a game that should just knock me out. So I went through the the challenge of that while we're putting the deal together, and I kept thinking I had the deal, and then kept thinking I was losing it, and and so it took a lot to get it together. And then I had a whole series of angry farmers that at the meeting that um, saw the business sold to me, at different times the, when, we were, when we were doing the, the roadshow to convince the farmers to vote for the deal, you know, people would stand up and say, we don't want this deal. Can we just hire you to run the business? And I go, no, you can't. <laughs> like, um, this is a good deal. Just, just you know. And, and so anyway, on the day, and they were all stressed. The farmers were all stressed. The farmers were all quite sad, although they were pleased that there was a solution coming that would, that would see the business go on. So on the day that it, that, that it ended, that I had the vote and we went back down to the boardroom at Tatura and there was champagne all over the table in the boardroom and I walked in and said to the then chief executive, we're not opening that. You know, this is not a happy day. This isn't being sold because it's a wonderful business in wonderful condition. It's being sold because it's in terrible condition. And the farmers of all and the and the people that we that just voted for it all know that they had to sell something right, that yeah. was worth more value. So we're not opening that and you and I are having a chat. And so I had already 
decided, and, and interestingly, to be, to be fair, I kept talking to my new board that, that we sort of put together, which included some of the directors from, from the old business, that uh, I would need to move the chief. The, the three that needed to move on, the CFO ha- had already indicated that he was happy to move on, the CEO was surprised and the chief of operations was, um, was the three that I said we need to move on. So I called them in literally the day of the vote and said, you need to go now. You can say goodbye to the next 24 hours but you need to go. And uh, with the encouragement, as I said, uh, of I was probably struggling to do that because it seemed harsh even mm. though it was right. Yep. And I did, and I think that is, I have to give credit that it was the right decision and it needed to be done then and there. So I, I, I got them to go and... And then I walked across the road and sat at the bus stop, didn't go back into the room, <laughs> sat at the bus stop and looked at this massive plant that I'd just bought and went and felt the weight of the responsibility, I suppose, which you always tend to do. I don't – so everybody goes, I'm I'm not good at celebrating with my team immediately after a transaction because I feel the weight of the responsibility of whatever that transaction might have been. So I went back in and I and I said to the team, okay, well – Look, if people want to go and have a drink or whatever, that's fine. But I'll join you a bit later. And then said to the uh, the, the head of HR there, I said, I need you to get the senior managers together tomorrow morning. And this had been, you know, I, from my perspective, this had been an organisation that I thought had been autocratically run. Right. And so I um, I walked into the meeting the next morning and I just said to them, right, it's two things. Um, one, so all the rationalisation, if you like, all the redundancies, all the sackings that be going to occur, they're done. Oh, that's, that's the three are done. I said, the three are done, that's it. You're all safe. And they then went, oh, and they're all very quiet. And they went, um, right. And I said, okay, so that's first order of business, you're all safe. Your jobs are all fine. And I said, and the second order of business is, does anybody know what's wrong with this business? Why is it not working? Because it's got some great assets, it's good, you know. I don't know what's wrong with it. You guys must know what's wrong with it. Has anybody got any ideas how to fix it? And they were sort of looking at me, stunned, you know, because they're going, "You're meant to be, you're meant to be the, <laughs> you're meant to be the person that's coming to save the business." You're meant, and you're asking us, and I said, "Yeah, of course, I'm asking you." And it took a little while because they weren't used to being given the freedom to say, "This is right, this is wrong." And it's a big thing, you know, it's a big thing to encourage uh, an environment where it's okay to go, I don't know why we do this, this seems stupid or I don't know, I, I think, I don't know why we don't do that. And there was all these things that came out where there was people we wouldn't work with and there was, you know, old animosities over somebody who'd once stolen a customer so we wouldn't cooperate with with other companies and we wouldn't do this and we wouldn't do that. And so, yeah, so they started to talk. And the interesting thing is I I was aware uh, and without going into the detail, I was aware that the company had not been a good community citizen. Mm, okay. So I'd also said to them, now we need to do something for the community. We need to start a community event. And I'd said to the board, I need a fund, I need a I need a fundraising budget. And the board said, Of all the things you want, you want a budget to give away money. And I got, yeah, I do. I said, because the community doesn't like the business. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so but long story short, I, I actually said to them, I've been driving from, to, from Tullamarine to Tatura. It's 200 kilometres. I reckon I could ride my bike that 200 kilometres. We should have the Tulla to Tat 200 and we should raise money for local charities. Give it away. And they all looked at me and went, 
what? And I go, when do you want to do that? And I said, as soon as possible, you know, it takes three months to sort that out. And, and they go, we don't ride bikes and we don't know how to raise, run fundraising events and all the rest. I said, I don't know. Yeah, we'll do that in spare time. You know, I'll help and we'll do it. And they, and they all, and one of them, which was a great sign, said, so we understand that you like riding bikes. So if you like <laughs> tiddlywinks, will we have to put together a tiddlywink competition? <laughs> I went, Probably. But I said, look, the, but the point is we need to, we need to fundraise for the community and we need to be part of this community and we need to do something that they'll be involved in. Right. I went back the next week and they had said, can we do a figure eight? Can we call it the Tat 200 and do go out in a circle, back for lunch and out in a circle? Well, the thought better, of that. Better logistics, easier to do. Now, if you're cynical and you're thinking about how you can get people working hard towards a particular outcome, yeah. you want them talking to one another a lot. If you've ever tried to ride 200 kilometres, you need to train. So all those teams, all the different people that work for TAT, not only were they all working together to get the TAT 200 up and running, if you weren't riding a bike, you were on a bike training, you were training with me, you were leaving at six in the morning and you were heading out somewhere to do 50, 80, 100 kilometres and you were doing that two or three times a week and, of course, I'd be riding along sometimes listening to them. And what are they talking about? Work. Yeah, right. How they can improve things. They've got time together. They're out bored to death pedalling around my bike going, you know, like what am I going to do? But they bonded around a, 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 what was a community event that, that went um, and that's been now running for years but it whole, but that little group have or that now quite big group have um, devised any number of the, the plans that made that what it is today. So against all the uh, advisory, people said, look, maybe you have to leave this potential investment alone. It's ended up being one of the best investments for the group, hasn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Courage or conviction, Barry? Oh, look, I think probably a little bit of both. I mean, I never think that I am. I actually think I'm quite conservative. We come from a conservative background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I always think I have sought a lot of information and a lot of knowledge from a lot of people and a lot of perspectives. And indeed, I've always thought that I've had very good people around me, you know. So, so I've been, I've had really strong support in what I've wanted to do but, you know, very knowledgeable sort of input, if you like, which meant that, you know, each time I, each time we grown again, gone again because, of course, you know, after that we went, you know, the global financial crisis came straight after that. Yeah, right. And, and then, of course, when the global financial crisis came, we bought more. We bought more. We, we bought a very large business from Kraft in Strathmerton, um, very large facility. We became by far the largest cheese cut pack and processor in the country. We bought another family family dairy business in Melbourne and we and we, you know, then went on with the strength of what we'd put together then to list the company. Right. And so this was a business a number of years earlier, it was on its knees. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was look, I, I still, you know, you, you it, it's funny, Greg, as much as, you know, you don't know what the right KPI is, if you like. You know, my lasting memory the first time I looked at that balance sheet, it had one point two million dollars of issued capital. Yep. And I think if we looked on the ASX today, we'd find the, the, the market cap of the company at 1.4 billion. So it, and, and again, I go back to when I joined, we produced you know, maybe 4,000 tonne of cheese in that first year. We'll produce yeah, across the various products this year, you know, with the addition of our latest acquisition at Coroit, probably 300,000 tonnes of 
dairy products destined for places around the world or, or, or food products destined for places around the world, you know, and in Australia. So, so you're yeah. still following that dream uh, because you've moved now into a recent acquisition, 460 million yeah. acquisition. That's not insignificant. No. Mondelay, with household mm. name, like mm. the likes of Vegemite, mm. peanut butter, mm. back, in, back on the shelves yeah. with uh, Bega. Yeah. What made you do that and are you going to win with it? So there was a couple of things. I, I mean, I was always careful to, to make sure that there was uh, this was entirely logical and not emotional about, you know, I guess there there is no question that after the event, having Bega Cheese be the company that could bring Vegemite home and after almost often, you know, it was really only for a very short time Australian owned and so for, for almost 90 years it had been owned uh, in the US and so right. and many had tried and for us to be the ones that could actually execute it was, was I guess, a sense of achievement in itself. But the, the logic was, was to me quite strong. So I, I, I've spoken a lot about the fact that we were, we developed an extraordinarily good business to business model that had allowed us to grow and develop, but we were growing up and we were becoming a more sophisticated business and we were increasingly more interested in or, or, or wanted to chase those additional premiums in being business to customer B to C or to consumer. And we, and we, we probably, if we were, fair about ourselves didn't think that we had the requisite skill base in our own business or indeed we didn't think that we had the the business to offer to actually create it. So we wanted to buy a preeminent B2C business and we also wanted it to be something that was almost unassailable. So your first step out of dairy into into food if you like and, and, and a big step into brand marketing rather than just business to business. If you were trying to find a brand that could not be deleted from a from a supermarket shelf, yeah. indeed, you can't put out a own brand black yeast spay spread and hope to sell it. Even Dick Smith tried for all he could, that's, but Aussie right. would not sell. No. Vegemite, even more than beer. So it used to be that people talk about beer brands as being just unassailable. Well, they... These days, boutique brands, all those sorts of things, have taken some of that space. Yeah, you right. look at Vegemite; nothing takes its space. Therefore, but does it actually sell? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. It's in. It's in. Uh, dep- depending on on what day of the week or, or or time of the year, it's in nine out of ten pantries in the Australian. Is that right? Yeah, it's in. Everybody has a jar of Vegemite in their in their um, pantry, and um, and it's an extraordinarily reliable revenue stream and a reliable income. And if you're in a business such as ours, you do need elements that are very stable and very reliable. So it gave us those two wonderful things, an extraordinary stability uh, of earnings and income and the addition of some highly skilled brand marketers um, and, and sales networks that we didn't otherwise have. And of course, as you said, along with that came peanut butter, yeah. which was in our mind it was the growth opportunity. So Vegemite, we see we, we we're not expecting to sell Vegemite to the world, but yeah. but but we would say that we might try, but we we, we don't expect to to sort of have any miracles occur there. But something like peanut butter, healthy product, growing category. Uh, again, we went on and bought the supply chain. So yeah, you've gone vertical, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you bought the peanut farms. We bought the bought the peanut manufacturing and have, have yep. And so we can talk to people the way we talk about dairy. Would you like to meet the farmer that grew your nuts? Would you like to meet the farmer that produced your milk? Would you like to know what the company does and who they are that delivers the product? 
So I keep saying we're actually going back and creating a traditional food company. Yeah, right. Because what you've seen over the last couple of decades is companies disassociate with farmers, if you like, and say we're going to be the face of the brand and we're going to take all the premiums out of the brand and out of the the, the sales and marketing and distribution, but we're going to leave the manufacturing and, and the management of the farmers to somebody else. And I sort of say increasingly in the days of social media and, and, and instant information, consumers are wanting to know where their food comes from, how it's produced, who produces it, and indeed who manufactures it and who delivers it to them. And so we're actually creating a, a, a food company that looks more like the food companies of old, but I think they will be, it will be the differentiator and the, and the successful model of the, uh, of the future where a customer, wherever they might be in the world, wants to ask me, do you know the farmer that produced that litre of milk or those peanuts to go into my peanut butter or whatever else it might be? And we're, and we're seeing it increasingly as people worry about food security and food quality that they, they want to understand their supply chains. And, you know, it's topical at the moment around honey, you know, and that's, that's one of those things where I say there's that's an right. indication of the way the world is going. The world wants to know that I know who the farmer is, how it's produced, and they want to know how I behave when I manufacture the product and deliver it to them. And what's Bega's longer-term mission? Is it now to go go to the world, Barry? Yeah, and I, look, I'm always careful not not to sound or sound too much like a dreamer. But and maybe the best way of putting it is this: I, I've been, you know, we've been in a couple of very public battles for major food and dairy assets in Australia, and I've run second a couple of times. And people have said to me, "Ah, oh, you must be disappointed to to run second to a multinational," and you know. You, you, you know, how do you feel about that? And, and you know, it's, it's a shame that that's not in Australian hands anymore or whatever else it might be. And, and my response is always, look, I'm not, I'm not the least bit disappointed about that. And I actually believe in foreign investment. I believe in, in, in a fair game. I run out on a, on, a, on, a, on a field and I play and if I get beaten, I get beaten. What I'm disappointed about is that I'm not competing against them in their markets, okay. that I'm not going after assets around the world that they see as valuable. And when I look at some of the examples of multinational food companies, their their beginnings, their origins are not too different to where we are now. Yeah. And so, so the re, yeah, I, look, I think Australia is very good at food and agriculture. I don't, but, but we, for reasons that I can't really um, put a finger on, don't really own very much of that supply chain anymore except for on-farm. And I keep going... I don't know why not. I see an investment community that wants to support it and it's just about having the right strategy and the right disciplines to create it. So, yeah, so that is very ambitious but I sort of sit there saying we should look to compare ourselves against the major food companies of the world and, and say why can't that be us? Fair question. What did, what did you learn from your, your, um, your partnership with Blackmores because then you moved into – to Asia and to China, and there's, there's different reports, yeah. good, bad, and ugly. Yeah. What do you, what did oh, you so, take away? So, so look again, you know, it, it it didn't work, and I think there was a couple of things. I mean, interestingly, I would view that partnership with with a level of affection, even though we lost money and we lost, you know, twelve odd million dollars. You know, and 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 the reason I do is that relationships uh, are always good in the good times. Yeah, good point. They're really they're they're really interesting to see whether you can sustain them in the horrible times and the horrible times of losing money and the market 
it was so enthusiastic for the partnership and it didn't work and and look and the learnings were what we what we were putting together was we had all the knowledge of how to produce infant formula we were one of Australia's largest infant formula producers we produced for multiple customers technically we know what what a good infant formula looks like we know what the best in the world looks like blackmore's extraordinary success into china yeah. uh, had done a wonderful job with with uh, their, their their vitamins business and we went, well, here they are. They're specialists at the front-facing part. We're specialists at actually producing the product. You might like, this should be a match made in heaven. Yeah. And just interestingly, the brand didn't transfer across well, obviously, to, to, to formula. And there probably wasn't, even though probably wasn't a big enough differentiator. Now, the funny thing is we would have said – that was probably one of the best produced infant formulas, one of the most science, technical infant formulas you would ever see. But the science alone wasn't enough. There had to be something more than that. It, it didn't capture the market. We ended up saying, well, Blackmore's uh, very much a marketing company, us very much a, a, a manufacturing company, couldn't get comfortable as the losses kept building up. Now, Forevermore, there'll be an argument around: Did we? Did it just need more time? Was it just poor, poor timing? We will never know. But, but you know, we took the decision to say, well, we'll keep the relationship strong. We'll, we'll change the relationship into a supplier, with them being a marketer, without the joint venture in the middle, and that and that's ongoing. But the relationship stood the test of time. So I'd say there was plenty of learnings there. There's plenty of guys in my team that would be sitting there still licking a few wounds, but. They've also learnt plenty of lessons and it doesn't mean that we won't probably try again at some point in the future. You're pretty fond of a quote, aren't you, Barry, by Mark Twain, which says predictions are difficult, especially if they are about the future. Yes, I am. Yeah. Barry, can you talk us through a bit about, you know, like you, you are bold for someone who's come from a very conservative background, challenging times as a, as a young kid coming mm. through in the family. You go and work in the banking sector, which was very conservative in those days. You take a business which about what, 80 people? Yeah. You've grown it to what it is today. What is it that you bring, Barry? Because obviously you, you break the rules. You're not conventional. There's there's a lot of drive obviously there. Mm. There's the innovation. But how does that translate and how do you get the best out of this? Like you say, what, what, what was the outcome of that discussion? We have no <laughs> competitive advantage. It's down yeah. to us. Yeah. So, look, the reason why I like the Mark Twain quote is because Quite often when I'm asked by various people, you know, what's the future, you know, and, and it particularly comes from farmers that are worried about oh, what yeah. the future might be, but it comes from all sorts of sectors, you know, and, and I always sort of see the question asked with, an, with a level of fear and a level of discomfort and they're sort of, and so it has a negative tone to it when they say, you know, well, what do you think the future holds and, or, or is there a future in daring or is there a future in manufacturing or is there a future? It's almost always, well, convince me that there is because I'm not sure that there is. So the reason why I actually always use the Mark Twain quote of, you know, predictions are difficult, especially if they're about the future, is that I actually want to make light of it. I actually kind of go, I, and, and the reason why I sort of start the conversation by trying to say, look, that's a bit funny if you think about it. Is, is that I, I think one of the things that I do bring is, is I have always had this curiosity about the future. I've always had this sort of optimism about what can be achieved if you put the right people around you, apply the right resources, put the, put, a, put a group of people in the room, in a room and say, tell me the dumbest idea you've ever had. Tell us the smartest idea you've ever had. It doesn't matter. Just, just, you know, get knowledge and information and, 
and, and to me a belief in the wisdom of the collective. I think people do seek to be led, but I think sometimes we don't put enough faith as leaders in the wisdom of the collective. In the, in, 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 if we have the right people in a room mm-hmm. and they think something is wrong or they think something is right, it's very it's it's very important to listen to their collective wisdom and and i think i've probably been good at hearing it i've probably been good at saying okay i've i've got enough information i've heard enough words i've i sometimes use an analogy and i think it's um i think it was oh, i can't remember he was he was a Matthew Riley, I think it was. He was the chairman of um, Northern Rock all those years ago, which collapsed in the in the in the global financial crisis. But he was a sociologist, and he he talked about the importance of ideas having sex. And he said, "We have to believe in Darwinism. We have to believe in survival of the fittest." You know, so it's actually proven that we procreate, the strong survive, the weak disappear. Yeah. If you actually believe that around ideas, you don't need to spend all your time criticizing a poor one. It will perish. What you have to do is believe that good ideas will prevail and will survive. And I don't know that we've got enough leaders that are willing to to not lecture but to listen and say, okay, well, I've heard all those ideas. I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time trying to dismiss ideas that I think are bad. I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to say, right, here's the ones that are worthy of trying to make survive, trying to grow, trying to do whatever. And I think that's that, – that's prob- so what I can do, I suppose, is I listen very carefully. I, I'm very curious about what everybody thinks and that's, I guess, the other thing. You should believe that everybody you're talking to has some wisdom to share with you, even somebody who is yelling at you. You know, you need you need to listen to exactly what they're saying because I sometimes say and you watch it, when people are being asked questions under pressure, you can see them not listening to the question but thinking about their answer. True. And they're preparing true. their answer rather than listening. And I think probably, you know, what would I say I'd bring? I'll create the environment for those discussions to be had, for those dreams to be shared, for those fears to be understood, and then I'll go, okay, this is what we're doing and you can be sure that I will be with you all of the way. So I think, you know, most of my teams will go, Barry will stand in front of the in front of the bus if it's coming. He will not put us under it. You know, and and we'll all own the idea. Barry, can you sort of finish off and talk us through the diary? Where it begins on Monday and where you end up at the end of the week. <laughs> so I think that, that last day is very, very important for our yeah. audience. Oh, look, there's probably two things I, I, I'd say there, Greg, and I suppose for the purposes of of, of this, I'll, I'll, I'll say it publicly. I always think that that one of the things that we should do as business leaders is get rid of the obsession with risk, which I know is controversial, Absolutely. especially in these circumstances. There's risk committees everywhere, Barry. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why I say it is not because I don't think it has a role in business. I just think the word should be changed and the word should be changed to fragility. Because I actually think that the trouble with the word risk is that it repels people. It makes people step back from avoid. It has all the connotations of avoid. If you say something is fragile, you go to it and you protect it because it may be very valuable. So we all know that we won't be successful if if we want to avoid risk completely. We won't leave this room if we want to avoid risk completely. 
We don't want to avoid it. We actually know there's great value and great opportunity in risk, but we shouldn't be calling it risk. We should be talking about the fragility within our businesses and we should be going towards that fragility because if we go towards it, and, and, and you know, and I, and I use silly analogies, but if we talk about climate fragility rather yeah. than climate risk, it, it tells us more that that is something that is fragile is something that is valuable. Now that now, that's a strange way to start answering your question, but... No, Barry, I'm pretty used to you being pretty yeah. It's all right. <laughs> so for me, you can imagine I've sort of rolled along in life and there would have been various times in life where you go, well, you know, we ended up buying many more farms and the farming operations have become quite successful and bigger cheese is obviously quite successful. And, and you could start to go, well, or I could start to think that I was, again, maybe not needing so much help or a bit invincible or able to able to have the right knowledge. And, of course, when my third child, Maddie, came along, he was diagnosed as profoundly autistic. And I always say, look, you know, everybody's good at something. Maddie is extraordinarily good at being extraordinarily autistic. And when we talked to specialists in the field at the time and, you know, I, I, Maddie's 27 now and, and I'm actually his primary carer this week, which is another story, but he's – they would – People would just look at him and say, and, and interestingly, at one point we were told, again, if you go back 25 years, that the best thing for him would be to be institutionalised and for us to give him up. It would be too difficult for our family. Of course, we didn't do that. And, and I go back and think, well, you are you are defined by how you're brought up. So there's difficult things. And the, uh, but what that, mum stood that's, for. That what mum stood for. There was no way. <laughs> the, but, but I was going to do it better. I was going to, I was going to not have my son who still, you know, he's he's like a he he's functions at around a two year old level with anxieties and with a tendency to self injure and lots and lots of challenges. But I always can remember, and somewhat to my shame, um, me being embarrassed by my sister being stared at and my mum making me take her everywhere I went and you know, and uh, walking out through school to a pretty ordinary portable building that didn't have any Right. Any facilities and, you know, people did their best but their value to society was almost defined by what you could physically see. And again, you know, it was it, it, the world could be cruel. So when Maddie was diagnosed, we had a new challenge, you know, and we tried. We established a little service in the little town of Marimbula just down from Bega and, yep. and but even when we were establishing the service, the, people, the staff we were getting to help us said, we can't handle Maddie. You know, and which was true. And we tried and, and we went to Canberra. And, and look, my wife, who's obviously, you know, wonderful person said to me, look, I can get us through the days, but you better get us through the decades. You're going to have to work out what the big plan here is going to be. So, um, I even went to Sydney and talked to the peak body of, of autism in Sydney at the time and spoke to any number of specialists and staff and whatever else. And I'll never forget leaving one particular facility and every time I would visit and have a look, I would think, Maddie can't go here. And I think it was it was looked at probably through the lens of my sister where I, where the where they where the places felt sad. And I remember walking from one who'd said they could perhaps take him an hour a week and it was in Sydney and one of the staff members ran down the path to me and said, um, Barry, you know, what you're looking for doesn't exist. I don't right. even know that it exists anywhere in the world. And the funny thing is it was sort of a relief to me because I could stop searching. Right. So the long story short is that there was a small group of parents in a similar position to us and they were 
looking to um, establish giant steps, which I quickly joined them <laughs> and 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 I quickly announced. You know, funny the way we started this interview. I quickly, I went back to Bega and quickly said to my wife, "I think we need to move to Sydney." And even though this organisation is in a is has got tendency to a rather crummy building and there's only six people and it's trying to get out of the ground and you know and I, and I think I can help them. Um, I think we can part of it. With that's what we should move. We should move the whole family back to Sydney, and we should send Maddie to what was going to be then Giant Steps. And she said, "Well, we'll need an income, and how are we going to do that?" And I said, "Oh, I'll commute." And she said, "For how long do you think you'll do that for?" And I said, "Oh, one, two, <laughs> maybe twenty years." You know, like, and and so the so the funny thing is, so so how does my week start? It starts on so I became. Chairman of Giant Steps and have been, and Giant Steps has grown to include. So from those six staff back then, I think we've got 138 staff now. We've opened a school in a primary and a high school in Melbourne. We've got multiple. We've got primary, secondary, post school. We've got. We opened up a world's first mental health clinic within the school facilities a couple of years ago. We've done extraordinary things. Uh, relied on the on the help of many to to get it to happen, and we take. Children with autism from all walks of life, so we we don't charge fees. We just, you know, I always say we have the world's worst um, business plan for the world's best reason, you know. Yep. And we and the and the business plan is simply that if everybody does what we what they can, we'll get there. So people like myself can obviously make big donations and can obviously bring corporate support, and others can mow the lawn. But we all we all make our contribution, and and so the way my week goes is that so I start on uh, I leave Sunday I used to drive but now because of the expanse of Bega cheese I fly but I leave Sunday night and I fly to Bega I get up at four o'clock on Monday morning to this day and still milk cows on the dairy farm because really? yeah I do because I never want to forget where we started and 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 indeed that important part of our supply chain and that's a way of me reminding myself in the cold and the mud and the drought and the dry eye and, you know, and indeed, to, to be fair, staff don't respond very well when you turn up on a farm in a suit and tell them what to do. <laughs> but, if, but if you've just milked 450 or 500 cows and they arrive and you go, listen, we need to do this for the week and you won't see me again. So I'll, I'll leave, I'll be up, up home at 7.30 and in the bigger cheese office at 8.30 on a, on a Monday and do my... Generally, last in Bega Monday and maybe Tuesday. Go to Melbourne Wednesdays, Thursdays, and then try to be back in Sydney on Fridays. In the early part of of that schedule, I used to try and dedicate all of Friday to Giant Steps when it was small. Used to try and assist with submissions and and whatever else we needed to do. And I was I was literally the school handyman for a lot of years. wasn't very handy. My skills probably could have been used better elsewhere. But but I would I would turn up. You know, in the early years when I was driving, I would turn up with the farm ute loaded with equipment to whatever, and would spend the weekend doing whatever I could to get giant steps into some sort of shape. I used to always say to the staff, and I still say to this day, whatever project we have, it has to be beautiful because I always go, when, when the parents of children with autism drop their children off at giant steps, I want them to see something that is beautiful because that's the best indication of 
the fact that we love and care for their children as much as if we were a private school. And um, so, so I was determined to make the whole site as beautiful as I could even when we didn't have a lot of money. To, so these days, Giant Steps, as I described, has become quite a large organisation. So, and Big is obviously much larger. So my time is 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 generally more taken now with I'll land in Sydney and, and go to our corporate lawyer's office and work out of there. But I always try and finish Friday. So I start on Monday with my cows and I finish on Friday afternoon having a glass of wine with the Giant Steps staff so they can download to me what the issues might have been that they dealt with through the week and I'm a typical male, I keep trying to solve them and they keep saying, no, we don't actually need you to solve them, we just need you to understand what our week's been like and, and, and you know, where we can ask you for help, we will. And um, so so I always spend every Friday and then I then I wander home and, and uh, Maddie's... Uh, Generally, Maddie's mum's pretty pleased to see me home on the Friday and says, "Here's Matty," <laughs> and um, and and I'm pretty pleased to take him. And Maddie and I spend a lot of time walking and doing things that Maddie wants to do on the on the weekends. There's no doubt about it, you understand people very well, Barry. I guess final comment or final question: Didn't you mate? Didn't you reach out to the Australian cricket captain? I did. I did. Yes, against uh, uh, a young man under a lot of pressure. Yeah. So look, I had the perspective at the at the time. So obviously, we're talking about Steve Smith, and I, I think I, I viewed that moment. People make mistakes, and I and I actually think about and I think about my own leadership. And when you're young, you can have a conviction about what is right, and you can even know in your heart what is right. But it takes a lot to actually develop the skill to control a culture or build a culture, and and when you're young. I don't think that comes to many singularly. When when I remember myself as a young leader, there were strong people that I that I couldn't quite stand up against as strongly as I might have liked. Or there was or and there was equally good people that and I'm talking about, you know, again coming from that rural community, farmers that would come along and say they, a lot of them still call me son or boy, you know, and they come along and they put their hand on my shoulder and say Listen, son. You know, you might want to think about this. Don't want to say it public, or and they and I would see what you know for the want of a better way of putting it, what good men and what good women would do, and that that came to me over a significant period of time. I would not argue that in the twen- in my twenties I was strong. I knew what was right and wrong, but I wasn't always strong enough to deliver that. And so, when I saw what was happening to Steve, I went you know what, it's a big weight to put on a young man who probably hasn't had or he's been very focused on being a very wonderful cricketer and from all reports a very decent young man. And he made a mistake and without wanting to blame others, I thought you needed to look through a lens of uh, a bit more empathy about what it is to be that leader and indeed you know, a judgment call that we would all say was the wrong judgment call. But I think what we look for in, a, in, in Australia and, you know, what I hope I look for is that, you know, it's important for people to recognise their mistakes. It's important for people to, to, to want to improve because, you know, if I look at my business, if I got rid of every person that made a mistake... I wouldn't have a very good culture and I wouldn't have a very good business. You know, um, I, I'm actually the reverse. I sometimes say when to staff that are a bit mortified about just the size of the error they've made, I've gone, I'll say that was expensive training, wasn't it? You know, and, 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 and let's get on with it, you know. Um, okay. and, and, and so, so to me, and, you know, 
we are not important in Steve's life, but I didn't want him to feel alone. And I, and I did want him to feel like there was those out there that had a different view and it's a, and it's a view that says you made a mistake, I'll have an empathy for that mistake. Forgiveness is an important human trait. And, and I actually thought that you know, we should we, – so we reached out and said at the time if you if – you, you know, when you're ready, we'd be happy to talk to you about being um, part and being being an ambassador for Bega. Now, of course, at the time, he he said, "Look, I need I need," or his management said, "I need time and space to just think." Which actually, again, I think was a good demonstration of the fact that he was thinking long and hard about, you know, how he would improve things and how how what had happened would inevitably change him. But I believe it'll change him as it does with all of us for the better. Mm, okay, Barry, just then finishing up. If you, look, if you think back all those conversations you had with all those competitors sharing your dreams, did the dream work out? Yeah, yeah, no, I think it did. No, no. Uh, look, I think I'm naturally um, a happy, optimistic person. And, you know, and so, so I think for me every time something happens, every time sort of fragility is revealed, yeah. I kind of believe in, as I said, I believe in the collective good. As, not only do I believe in collective wisdom, I believe in the collective good. And I think that, you know, quite frankly... I guess the way I would put it is that it's um, – I think you see most – you know, there are ne- any number of things that make people happy and it's not about materiality for me but living living a life that is perhaps better than the life you expected to live makes it easy to be happy. Well, a fantastic note, Barry. All I can say is thank you very much for sharing you. Thanks. And, and, the, and what you've achieved, the family, and I guess all the bigger people are very happy when you walk down the street these days. <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah, they're generally very happy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you've been listening to No Limitations. 